I'm Lynn Kitchens, so great to be here with you tonight. It was so funny, we did this last night at the West Campus, and I got up and said, you know, they kept saying there's going to be all these storms, and woohoo, look, the sun's out, and in the middle of my talk, ba-boom, and <laughs> lightning, and rain like sheets, and none of us had brought umbrellas in, because it was like sunny, we had sunglasses on. And so we're standing at the doors, and I just thought, Oh, okay. And we all just ran out there, and I drove in this, I couldn't see, and there were little streams and people on the sides of the road, and I got in my house, and I said, it's, it's okay, I'm okay, and Ted and my daughter are like, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you were so worried about me. <laughs> Hopefully that won't happen tonight, but you never know. I'm happy to take another look at one of the names of Jesus, especially happen to get to do the Lamb of God. I was surprised when I was studying this that only John the Baptist called him the Lamb of God. Everywhere else in the New Testament, it's just the Lamb. And mostly in the book of Revelations, Lamb is mentioned 34 times in the New Testament, 29 times it's in the book of Revelation. Here, though, we're going to talk about John's description, the Lamb of God. I love this story. I love it because it sums up the entire sacrificial death of our Savior, Jesus Christ, which is the reason we're here tonight, which is why we're free, we're forgiven, and we celebrate Him. Look at the top of your outline. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I also love this story because I can envision it. I can envision John the Baptist with the descriptions we have of him, baptizing in the wilderness and his cousin Jesus approaching him and Jesus setting his gaze on John's face. Matthew lets us know that John was overwhelmed being in the presence of Jesus, overwhelmed with emotion. And so when Jesus said, you need to baptize me, John debated him for a while, but then he obeyed him. And then, and then John lifting Jesus out of the water, and as he came up, the heavens opened. The dove came down. The voice of God filled the air. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. How wonderful to get to be there to hear that. Wow. And from that time on, John knew with certainty who Jesus really was. So later when Jesus walked by, John cried out into the crowd, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And I also love this story because in that one statement, there is so much truth. There is so much power there. In fact, I read about Charles Spurgeon would tell the story. He was a great pastor and theologian and ran orphanages in England in the 1800s. He told the story of a time he was going to preach at a place called the Crystal Palace in England. And it ended up later, I found out, 23,000 people came to hear him in the Crystal Palace. So he went early to figure out where he should put his pulpit so that the most people could hear him. So it was the very first sound check 
ever in history <laughs> that Charles Spurgeon did. And so I, I just think it was God that 23,000 people could hear him. I mean, that's kind of amazing. So as he would move his pulpit around the room, he thought he was alone, and he would yell out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, because that's what he was going to speak on. What he didn't know was there was a workman in there. And as he heard that a number of times, he was convicted of his sins, and he laid down his tools, and he ran home in conviction and began to follow Jesus Christ. And on his deathbed, he told Charles Spurgeon, well, you know, you were saying that in the, in the Crystal Palace. <laughs> and, you know, in that big empty room, that truth filled my big empty heart and changed my life. That's the power of that one sentence that John speaks. We're going to look at it a lot more in a minute. But before we look at God unveiling his lamb, we need to look at the shadow of the lamb. In the Old Testament, we can find the idea of sacrifice in the Old Testament even before the establishment of a sacrificial system. We can realize that the shedding of blood was God's plan to atone for the sins of man from the very beginning. Actually, we can go all the way back to the beginning, to Adam and Eve in the um, Garden of Eden, a place of perfect beauty, a place of perfect communion, a place of joy. Adam and Eve enjoyed their relationship with their creator until the day they decided to disobey him. And there were consequences to that. They found themselves faced with separation from God. And he said, you have to leave the Garden of Eden. But this is an amazing thing. Before he sent them away, we can see the shadow of the Lamb of God. Look on your verse sheet, Genesis 3.21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Instead of taking the life of Adam and Eve, the ones who deserved death, he sacrificed some of his own creation to provide a covering for Adam and Eve. Blood was shed, but it was not their blood. An animal was killed and died and had to pay for their sins. This was a shadow of the reality that one day God would someday take the life of a substitute to redeem sinners like he did, Adam and Eve. Okay, if we leave the garden, we can meet up with Abraham. We all remember him, the father of the Jewish nation. He had been walking with God a few years. In order to test Abraham's faith and his obedience, God called Abraham to Mount Moriah. And it wasn't for a picnic. It wasn't even for a sacrifice. It was for a sacrifice of his son, his one and only son. This is the son God had promised Abraham. This is the son Abraham had waited years for. But he had faith, and he began packing for the trip to Mount Moriah. When he reached the place that God told him to be, he told his servants, you stay here. He gathered up wood for the burnt offering. He took his only son, he put the wood on his back, and he said, let's continue to go to the place God's called us. Look on your verse sheet, Genesis 22. 
Here's what happened next. Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Well, behold the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. So either Abraham believed God had a substitute plan for his son Isaac, or he believed God was going to raise Isaac from the dead because he knew. He knew that Isaac was the promise and the fulfillment of a great nation coming from the descendants of Abraham. So as Abraham lifted the knife in his hands, he's about to slay his only sons. God stopped him and said, Abraham, don't lay a hand on your boy. Now I know, God said, now I know that you fear me because you didn't withhold your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham looked up. There was a ram caught in a thicket. His horns were caught. This was God providing the sacrifice for Abraham. And so Abraham named that place on Mount Moriah, the Lord will provide. Another shadow of the Lamb of God. Jesus would one day perfectly fulfill the promise that Abraham gave his son, that God would someday provide the Lamb to be sacrificed in our place. And God will remove those heavy burdens of sins that we all carry with us, like Isaac was carrying on his back as he headed to the burnt offering. One day, God was going to lift those from everyone through his sacrifice. I thought it was really neat that um, where God provided the burnt offering for Isaac would one day become the very temple of Jerusalem, a place of many sacrifices, and also just a very short distance from the very horrible place where God would one day provide the sacrificial lamb. At Calvary, the transaction of Calvary, his only son would pay for our sins. Many more shadows of the Lamb in the prophecies of the Old Testament. We're just going to look at a couple of them. First in Isaiah. So let's look at Isaiah 53 in your Bible. Fifty-three, verse 4. Isaiah said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. We learn from this prophecy what kind of sacrifice the lamb would face. What's it going to look like? It would involve great pain and great suffering. This was God's plan. Sin extracts a deadly payment. 
As Jesus willingly approached the cross, we will see how he is the total fulfillment of Isaiah's pronouncements because each step that Jesus took was a painful step. Painful physically, painful emotionally, painful relationally. His sacrifice would involve rejection and ridicule. It would mean blood. It would mean agony. It would mean death so that mercy would not cheat justice. God's mercy alone would not pay the penalty of our sins. Because the cross is not a compromise, it's a substitution. We deserve death. Jesus will die in our place. I thought it was interesting in the New Testament. I love the story of uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And you remember when God told Philip, Hey, there's this Ethiopian eunuch. He's in a chariot. I want you to go to him. He was leaving Jerusalem, and he was reading what we just read, the book of Isaiah. And so I picture Philip just kind of miraculously. He's there, and he's running alongside the chariot. Hey, how's it going in there? (laughs) And he says, I don't know. I don't get what I'm reading here. Maybe you can explain it to me. What about this verse here? Like a sheep, he was led to slaughter. Like a lamb before its shears is silent. Who's this Isaiah talking about here? Philip had the answer. Philip probably jumped in the chariot, told the seeker the good news about Jesus Christ, and he came to know the Lamb of God. Philip knew Isaiah 53. He also knew Jesus, and so he knew Jesus was the fulfillment of that prophecy because he was there. And I think the disciple Peter has some things to say that sound a lot like Isaiah's. He was also there. Look at 1 Peter 2 on your verse sheet. He says, Jesus committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Okay, David also had some great prophecies about the future suffering of God's lamb. Let's look at that in Psalm 22. That's in your Bible. I don't have that on the verse sheet. (laughs) Psalm 22, verse 1. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Look at verse 14. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Wow. All we have to do is look at the cross to see that David is describing the sacrifice of God's provision. These were Jesus' words. These were his enemies. This was Jesus' body. This was his grief. God's 
sacrifice would suffer. We learn that from these prophecies. We can't really grasp the meaning behind sacrifices unless we take a, a good look at Israel's sacrificial system. This was established by God through Moses in the wilderness after he delivered the Jews from Egypt. God wanted a relationship with Israel. He loved Israel. He chose Israel. The Messiah would come through Israel. But God is holy, and they were not. And so God designed a sacrificial system to cover their sins. And we saw in the Garden of Eden that the shedding of blood was required by God for this to happen. Animal sacrifices would provide a way for an unholy people to approach a holy God. These um, sacrifices didn't forgive sins in the same way that Jesus Christ forgives our sins. Instead, it revealed to them the seriousness of their sinful condition. Even a temporary covering of their sin required the death of an animal. So that fire was constantly burning at the altar, constantly bringing animals. And it would teach them, our God is really holy. Our God is really righteous and just to keep bringing, bringing these animals to come before him in humility. At the same time, it was a constant reminder to them of their deficiency. It was a way, though, they could approach him in repentance. And so the sacrificial system was at the very heart, at the very center of Jewish life. Think about that, though. The constant sounds of the bleeding of the animals, the crying of the animals, the bringing of the animals, the unceasing sight of that, the smell of the animal sacrifices, the constant glow of those altar fires at the tabernacle and later in the temple in Jerusalem. And while those fires continually burned, God used them to burn into the hearts of the Jews an awareness of their own sins. There were so many offerings, I didn't list them all, but there were peace offerings. There were uh, guilt offerings, burnt offerings, trespass offerings, many more. There were offerings on the first day of the new month and at feasts like Passover and Pentecost and atonement and many more. And then God established these daily lamb sacrifices at the tabernacle, which they carried on into the temple in Jerusalem until it was destroyed in 70 AD. And unblemished lambs were the principal animals of sacrifice. They offered them twice a day, once in the morning, once in the evening. They represented, in reality, the purity and the gentleness of the coming lamb of God, another shadow of the lamb. Look at 1 Peter 1 on your verse sheet. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. One day, we know Jesus willingly and quietly laid down his life for us like an unblemished lamb. 
I read this story about this little boy whose older sister was very ill, um, seriously ill, and she needed a transfusion, and they needed the perfect candidate, and the little brother was the perfect candidate for that, for him to be a part of that. So the doctor sat him down and explained, would you be willing to do this for your sister? And he said, okay. He looked real scared. He said, okay. And he was lying on the bed with her as they were doing this transfusion. And he got so excited because he began to see color in his sister's face again. So he was really happy for a minute. And then he started to tremble. And he looked at his sister and said, will I start to die right away? I thought, that is such an incredible story because we realize that humble, quiet willingness that he had thinking he was giving his life for his sister because he wanted to heal her disease. We can look at that in a little way of who Christ was. He wants to heal our disease. So he willingly lays down and gives his life for us. The entire sacrificial system was a shadow of the Lamb of God. Look at Hebrews 10. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Okay, before we leave the Old Testament, I want to think about Passover. So when Israel was still enslaved and they were in Egypt, God prepared to send that final plague to Egypt. The death angel would come and take the life of every firstborn. But God had a plan to spare his people. So let's look at Exodus 12 in your Bible. Verse 21, then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves among your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that's in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he's promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say it's the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover, for he passed over the houses of the people of Israel and Egypt when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Okay, another foreshadowing of the Lamb of God. The Lamb's blood really did form a cross at the Israelites' door so that the death angel would pass by. They had blood on the lintel. They had blood on this side of the door and blood on this side of the door and a basin of blood at the bottom of the door. A shadow of the sacrifice coming of the Lamb of God. Death passed them by. 
One day, Jesus, just after celebrating Passover with his disciples, walked to the cross as that Passover lamb. And when we apply that blood of his sacrifice on our hearts, the death angel passes over us. We have eternal life with him, our Savior. I want to take a good look now at when John the Baptist unveiled the Lamb of God. These were the shadows. So let's uh, look in your Bible at John 1. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me. He was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness and said this, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I didn't know him, but he sent me to baptize with water, said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, and I have seen him. I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Okay, so John is this strong person, strong calling, strong voice in the wilderness, telling Israel to repent. He knew his job was to prepare the way for the Lord He didn't know positively who that was until he baptized Jesus. I don't think those verses mean he didn't know Jesus at all. I think he knew him as a man, and he had a pretty strong inkling. (laughs) This could be the one, but he waited until the baptism to be sure. Then he knew, and did you notice he couldn't wait to tell everyone? And he continually would tell people that? But did you notice... He didn't just point out and say, behold, there's a really good guy. Behold, there's a great example for us to follow. Behold, there's a great teacher. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Nobody had ever heard anything like that. That's why there is so much wonderful things for us to learn in that verse. John had blessed lips. I think this sentence is one of the most important sentences ever spoken in all the world, and I'm going to give you seven reasons why. First of all, we learn from John that all the world is lost in sin, and mankind stands guilty before God. Remember, John said, this is the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. So the people hearing that would have thought, what in the world is he talking about? What is the sin of the world? Is he crazy? Sort of the same thing people say today. They wouldn't say the world's all in sin. People back then and people today would think, it doesn't matter because I'm really a good person. I recycle. (laughs) There's a hymn I love, I will arise, I will go to Jesus, he will embrace me in his arms, in the arms of my dear Savior. 
There are 10,000 charms. So come ye, weary, come ye, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. I read a story about a man in a distant country who had decided his religion was he would never eat an animal, no animal food, and he would never destroy any life, and that was his salvation. That was his religion. And so the missionary one day said to him, because he'd been keeping these rules and was very proud of himself, said, you know, when, when you drink water, there's some organisms in there. And the guy said, no, no, I'm just drinking water. It's pure, it's clear, it's whatever. So the, the missionary happened to have a microscope with him, took a drop of water, put it in a little dish, had the man look into it, and he could see <laughs> all these swimming organisms in it that he had been drinking. And the missionary said, look at all those things that you've been drinking inside. And instead of being convicted of his sin, he threw the microscope down on the ground. He didn't want to believe the facts. He wanted to destroy the evidence so he could hold on to his own system of legalistic goodness. The Jews would have thought, we sacrifice lambs to our God to cover our sins, but the pagans don't. The Gentiles don't. They'll die in their sins, but we won't. We're the chosen people. We aren't part of the sins of the world. The whole world can't approach our God. We're special. John is trying to let them know right here, all mankind has a spiritual predicament, and Jesus came to solve it. Look at Romans 5 on your verse sheet. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's Adam's sin, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men, and that is Jesus. So recognizing our sin nature really always is the first step towards our spiritual healing. What do we do when we recognize our need in this way? And that's the next amazing truth that Jesus came to be the substitutionary sacrifice for sin. John lets us know that. He's standing on the desert ground. He's pointing at the answer to the predicament he just announced, the sins of the world. But what is he telling the people to behold? A lamb. Behold, a lamb. A very disturbing visual picture for the Jews at that time. When they thought a lamb, they thought, well, I just carried one to be slaughtered the other day to the altar. What is he talking about? He's talking about a sacrifice, but he's pointing to a man. I don't understand what that could mean. John wants people to know this man is the lamb. This man is the lamb. The sacrifice for your sins. What are you to behold? Not the flesh of a lamb, but God in human flesh. The divinely appointed sacrifice to cover your guilt. Look at 1 John 4. And this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. 
Next point John's going to make, that all other sacrificial lambs were just a shadow of the one true lamb of God. We just studied that, but they didn't. John the Baptist would have grown up. He grew up in a very priestly home, so he was very familiar with the sacrificial system, very familiar with the daily sacrifice of lambs, but he never would have approved of a sacrificial lamb away from a consecrated altar where it was supposed to be. Yet here we see him in this lonely place along the Jordan River, and he's presenting the sacrificial lamb in a place that has not and has never been dedicated for God's service. He points at the one true sacrifice, standing in the middle of lost people, because he also had a lot of knowledge about past sacrifices. He knew about Abel's. He knew about Noah, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew about the Passover lambs, the lambs at the feast, the thousands of lamb offerings of King David and Solomon. But never would John have walked up to any of those past or present lambs and held them up and say, this is the one. This is the Lamb of God. Never. Wouldn't have crossed his mind to say that. Instead, on the banks of Jordan, John sees past all those other sacrifices for what they were, sets his gaze on Jesus Christ, and doesn't say, here's another Lamb of God. He says, here's the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. He knew even before Jesus gave his life on a tree that there is no atonement except substitution. And there is no substitution except in Jesus Christ. Another thing John teaches us, that Jesus would suffer and die to pay the penalty of our sins. By pointing out Jesus as a lamb here, John's highlighting the fact Israel's Messiah is not what you guys thought he would be. You thought he would be a conquering king, a king he will be, but not how you imagined it. As soon as a Jew would hear that introduction of Jesus as a lamb, their brain would have gone to blood and pain and death. And they're realizing John is portraying this innocent victim destined to become a bloody sacrifice. He's letting them know, your Savior will be meek and mild and suffer and die and be willing to face a cross and a torturous death. Why suffering and death? Because we are spiritually dead to God. We can't do a thing to change our condition. John wanted the Jews to know your righteous acts will never be enough to cover your sins. You need an eternal, one-time, sinless sacrifice, and he is standing right next to you. Because we're made of flesh and blood, Christ also became flesh and blood, and he adopted all the pain that comes with that. Only as a human being could Jesus die for a human being, and only by dying could he break the guilt of our sin. Look at Hebrews 2. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Another thing we learn from God, that God himself must provide the sacrifice, and the sacrifice must be his only son, 
Did you notice what he said? This is the Lamb of God. This Lamb comes from God. He's reminding them, as soon as they heard that, he's reminding them of Abraham's words, God will provide the Lamb. So under the Jewish system, if a man sinned, he would say to himself, i got to go find a lamb. So he'd go to his backyard, look around. If he didn't have any lambs, he'd sneak over to his neighbor's yard, <laughs> look for some lambs. If he couldn't find a lamb, he'd go into town, he'd purchase a lamb, and he'd offer it to God for his trespass. That was their life. John's saying, behold, he's right here. God has provided the lamb. And isn't it an amazing grace that all sin is leveled against God, and yet it is God himself who provides the lamb for us? Who was the priest offering the sacrifice on the sad day of Christ's death? Who was it that bruised him? Who put him to grief? It was God the Father. God providing the lamb. God delivered to us his most beloved, his choice one, his only one, his only son. God's only son became the only lamb. And it was necessary that God the Father would give a sacrifice that is nearest to his heart, that he loved. He must give the one perfectly loved and perfectly holy. No one else could provide a sacrifice for the sin of the world. Who else could fulfill God's broken law? Who else could offer God's justice the vindication that it demanded? God found the sacrifice for sin nowhere but in the depth of his own love. And Jesus is the lamb who God always accepts, loves to accept, must accept, and glories to accept. We all know that when we read John 3.16. We probably know it by heart, but it's on your verse sheet. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We don't hear this next verse much. For God didn't send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God provided the lamb. Next John lets them know Jesus would not only bear our sin, but he would also take our sin away. He says, Son of God, who take, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This would have been a new thought for the Jewish people as well. They saw their sins as being covered by God each time they made a sacrifice, but they didn't necessarily see it being taken away. Because then they were thinking about their next sacrifice and their next sin and how they were going to get by with that, always preparing for that. John is announcing to them the wonderful truth of sins being removed. In order for Jesus to take away sin, he first had to bear the sin. We saw that in the garden, sweating drops of blood for us, facing mocking and cruelty, rejection. He was forsaken of God on a cross. He bore it all. Our sins were laid on Christ, the scriptures tell us, and he bore them for us, but they didn't remain there. By bearing them, he bore them away. 
John's telling us he takes them away. He moves our sins and removes them as far as the east is from the west. We never have to wonder, where's the next lamb going to come from? I'm so guilty. Never have to think like that. Our glory is that by the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, sin was made an end of. What an incredible truth for the Jewish people to hear. What an incredible truth for us to hear. Hebrews 7 tells us, Consequently, this goes with our next point, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. So here's the last thing I want to talk about that John teaches us. Did you notice that John says He takes away the sin of the world? He didn't say, He took it away. He didn't say he's going to take away. He says in the present tense, he takes it away. And even though Jesus' sacrifice was only offered once, its effect is ongoing. That's why Jesus is described in the book of Revelation as being slain before the foundation of the world. Before Jesus even died, he's standing before John the Baptist as the lamb taking away the sin of the world. He stands before us today, 2,000 years later, as the lamb taking away the sins of the world. His sacrifice is effective before and after the event of his death. So we have a Savior today as full of power and purpose as if he had been crucified this very day. Here's a poem, this he has done, shall we not adore him? This he shall do, and can we still despair? Come, let's quickly fling ourselves before him and cast at his feet all the burdens of our care because he's still interceding for us. We can go with our needs. We can go with our weaknesses. We can go with our confessions and find out that he's sympathetic that he forgives. Even though our past, our present, and our future sins were covered at the cross for us, we still have daily sins that we have this wonderful place of freedom that we go to God and say, I need to confess this, take this weight off of me, take it off of the people I hurt. And he's interceding, and he's there, and he's ready. As our great purifier, he continually takes away and will continue to take away all the sins of the world. So how do we respond to the Lamb? How do we respond to this? Okay, last two things we can learn from John the Baptist. First of all, we need to be John the Baptist, don't we? You know, we are only a short time in this wilderness called Earth. A short time to be able to say to people, behold, the people that are self-righteous, that are confused, that are lonely and lost, behold, here's the answer to your issues. Here's your Savior that loves you. Aren't you glad that God sent a couple John Baptists or so your way in your life? I was so blessed recently. Um, I'll try not to cry over it, but um, my mom died about a year and a half ago, and my dad recently brought over my baby book. And I haven't even looked through it all because it's just too sad for me. 
But when he handed it to me, out fell a letter that I wrote when I was in my 20s. It's all baby stuff in this one letter. And I had written to her explaining to her how we can believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because at the time she did not. And I thought, what a blessing that God showed me that. I don't even remember writing it. It was probably not even correct. <laughs> but I know where my mom is today. Obviously, God used those words to change her heart and to bring her to him. We can be a John the Baptist in someone's life. Okay, second thing we can learn. Remember when John's disciples were standing with him and Jesus walked by and John said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And the two disciples just walked away from John. See ya. <laughs> you know, John was glad. John was thrilled. Here's what we learned from that. Once we behold Jesus, we need to follow Jesus. Once we accept his sacrifice, once we understand it, he has to be our life direction. We have to follow him, and we have to point him out to others. Look at the bottom of your outline. Happy if with my last breath I may but gasp his name. Preach him to all and cry in death, Behold, behold the Lamb. Let me pray. Father, we are overwhelmed with your sacrifice. We give you all praise. The glory goes to you. All we can say is thank you. And give us the boldness to be a John the Baptist in other people's lives. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.